You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Advent is this time when we are living in the middle of the story, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And this Advent, um, we're looking at Ecclesiastes. We're looking at it with uh, the theme of the Grinch, the Grinch who stole Christmas. You remember the Grinch story, right? Yeah, let me remind you, just in case you don't. Um, Remember how the Grinch stripped away all the trappings of Christmas from the wee little who's down in Whoville? And yet Christmas came without ribbons. It came without tags. You know this. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And, and you remember how when the songs rose up to the air from Whoville, and that at the sound of the singing in Whoville, they say the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. It's a great story. Well, Ecclesiastes, as a wisdom book, is written to kind of act like the Grinch. One person has said Ecclesiastes is, you have to imagine someone who goes into a, um, a really, uh, like a Christian bookstore that only sells things that look like Christianity and they're just kitsch and they're not actually Christianity and starts shoving over all of the shelves and saying, vanity, 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 vanity. It won't save you. Uh, this is what Ecclesiastes does. Strips us of everything that is not essential about Christmas and brings us back to what is. But in today's passage um, from Ecclesiastes, the Grinch of Ecclesiastes plays a slightly different role. And before I tell you about it, let me compare just a little bit of wisdom literature and the prophets. Because in Advent, we're used to the prophets. We're used to the prophetic passages. We're not as used to using wisdom. And wisdom can seem a little um, frustrating at times if we don't know what these writers are doing. So maybe the best way to explain it is to imagine it's like Facebook friends, right? And um, uh, so just for some of you who aren't on social media, who aren't on Facebook, one of somebody in my household who will go unnamed actually looked over my shoulder within the last few months and said, what is that? And like, it's a news feed. And it's like, it gives you all those stories. Um, and this someone's been on Facebook for five or six years. <laughs> but what Facebook does is people post things, don't they? So for example, when I was over in the UK to defend my... The- How many of you are on Facebook though, by the way? Do I need to even give this? Okay, I do need to give this. Um, you can raise your hands higher if you don't want me to explain this. But when I was in the UK, for example, Starbucks came out with their, you know, little red cups right? And that blew up on Facebook from the time I turned off my phone the night before and turned it back on when I had Wi-Fi again. There are just all, what people do is they repost stories, they make comments, they put up little cartoons, they make fun of people, they agree with people, they disagree with people, all about this certain thing that's going on in the culture. And what the prophets and the wisdom writers do is they look at these certain things going on in the culture, in the biblical literature, and they comment on them. But they do it in two very different ways. So if you imagine that there's a a prophet Facebook friend and a wisdom literature Facebook friend, and let's say they're not taking on Starbucks cups. Let's say they're taking on the topic, for example, of the way that average workers are vastly overworked and underpaid. Here's how their posts would be different. See, the prophet prophetic posts would be calling for change. The prophetic posts would maybe repost an op-ed piece that calls for regulation or a 35-hour work week like they have in France. This is what you'd read. The, the prophetic post is going to repost exposés of CEO salary packages or launch petitions or start a march and send you an event invite sort of thing. This is what happens on the prophetic Facebook, Facebook page. 
They're activists. They're calling for change. Not so the wisdom ones. Wisdom writers are pragmatists. The Wisdom Facebook page perceives the same issue, the reality of an overworked and underpaid workforce, and responds with a repost of real simple's best five-minute dinners because really you have to eat and you're getting home too exhausted to cook a whole meal. That's wisdom. Wisdom writers leave the activism to the prophets. Their aim is to practically navigate the situation as it is not as it should be. And they can get a little frustrating that way. So their posts are things like, you know, six steps to do more in less time, or three signs your coworkers claiming your work as their own, or their cartoons. But this is what wisdom does. So wisdom literature agrees with the prophets. They like their posts. Sometimes they even make little comments on their posts. But in the meantime, they say, we have to live with this mess. And the mess that the writer of Ecclesiastes turns our hearts and minds to today is not exhaustion or work, it is death. Death is always a violation. Our passage today calls it an evil. But there's something about Christmas time that makes it even more poignant. Because this is meant to be the season of jingle bells on sleigh rides through the snow, not detours through the valley of the shadow of death. So when we turn on the news and 14 people are killed at a holiday party, when we're continuing to read reports about the shooting of an unarmed black teenager, when our friends uh, carrying bridge updates of their cancer battles cause our hearts to catch in our throat, when we receive the gift catalog still addressed to the loved one whom we lost this past year, or we pull out the decorations, that poignantly remind us of those we love who are not here to celebrate with us any longer, there's our Grinch. Our hearts shrink, and we find ourselves up on the mountain. See, our passage this morning from Ecclesiastes is written to take us back down from the small-hearted mountain into the party. It's not this morning anymore, by the way. It's evening. Back down into the party. And it comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. It's on page 541 in your black Bibles if you want to look at it. Or you can pull out your phones and look it up on your phones. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, page 541 in the black Bibles. I'm going to read from the New International Version, which is why I don't have a Bible, one of those Bibles in hand this time. But I'm going to read from the New International Version. And before I do, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, light of the world and light in our darkness, I pray that you will illuminate this reading of your holy scriptures in our hearts, in the way that we uh, receive this word, in the way that I preach it, that you will bring light to our darkness and your glory to our world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So here's the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher of wisdom. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. 
As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. Isn't this a great Advent passage, by the way? <laughs> For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going... There is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had dinner a few weeks ago with um, Cheryl Hayner and some other friends, Tim and Carrie Dearborn. And we were discussing an upcoming class that is happening here at, at UPRES in, in the mornings, uh, starting January 17th. That's um, uh, Martin Luther King weekend. Um, but it's, it's a class on death. It's called Dying Well. Um, and we'll be using Cheryl's participating, Ray Moore, one of our pastors, um, my husband David, um, Pat Benz, one of our elders, have been, have been putting this together. And we'll be using the book, Joy in the Journey, Finding Abundance in the Shadow of Death, that was written by Cheryl and her late husband, Steve Hayner, as they faced Steve's battle with terminal pancreatic cancer. And while discussing the merits and pitfalls of this phrase, dying well, uh, Tim suggested a subtitle along the lines of learning to live totally out of control, which is a great title for this passage we just looked at. Because this is the observation made in the first verses of our passage, that all people the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the innocent and the guilty, the religious and the secular. Everyone dies with no choice in the matter. It is entirely out of their hands. No one knows whether the day as it dawns will hold the love that promotes their life or the hate that will end it. And in verse 3, the teacher of wisdom calls this an evil, that death is not natural. Now, frankly, after the poem that George preached on last week from Ecclesiastes 3, the one that talks about how to everything there is a time and a season, the one that begins with a time to be born and a time to die, you might expect the teacher to post the sentiment that death is a natural part of living. But that's not true. Death is a violation of God's purposes for the people whom God has made. And any violation of God's good purposes is referred to in Scripture as an evil. More specifically, though, in this passage, the application of the exact same outcome, death, no matter the sum total of a person's life, this is an evil. It's just not fair, the writer says. 
And how often have you looked at a situation, read the biographies of someone whose life was cut short and thought to yourself, it's just not fair. This was a good person. Or, or hearing of the terminal diagnosis of a friend in the prime of their life when they are still contributing so fully around them. This, this isn't right. This is a good person. And our passage goes on to observe, moreover, that people participate in this evil. Call to mind just now the violence in California or Chicago or Colorado or Paris or Lebanon or Syria or Nigeria. And then listen to this again, what he writes. The hearts of men and women are full of evil and there is a madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. And this is also an evil, that the same fate awaits the aggressors and the victims, that there is no distinction. And having articulated the problem with the same clarity and perception that we have come to expect of the prophets, our teacher of wisdom does, though, discern a practical distinction, a pragmatic distinction. And this is what it is. Anyone who's living has hope. Hope is the distinguishing feature. So in verses 7 to 10, if you look at it, there's this very practical sort of social media post for living fully in the face of a death that you can neither prevent or predict. And let me read it to you again, this time from Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. Here's what he writes. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes. God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the sp spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it and heartily. This is your last and only chance at it. For there's neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you're most certainly headed. Do you hear the wisdom in it? Set your hope on life, not death. And you really hear the wisdom if you compare what the opposite to these things would be. Of a heart that has been shrunk down and is living in fear of death. Because the opposite of these things would be to be fasting and mourning, to live in sackcloth and ashes, to reject relationships as simply too risky and emotionally dangerous. Because why put my heart on the line when this person whom I loved so completely will only leave me bereft, or worse, I will leave them? What does it matter what I work for? What does it matter that I work for justice or goodness or beauty when my life could be taken in a moment? These are the fears that direct a life that is controlled by death. And the writer to Ecclesiastes is not simply saying, eat, drink, and live today, for tomorrow you shall die. The writer to Ecclesiastes is saying that death is a trespasser and a thief, and do not give him his due. Set your hope and your hearts on living. Don't give death any of your life any sooner than death calls for it. See, it seems to me that at Christmas time, at this time when the entire world, it seems, goes into feasting mode, it's even more difficult to come to the table fully when our hearts are constricted down by grief or by fear. 
And here's the wisdom and the compassion of the teacher. The teacher doesn't claim that this is fair or that death doesn't exist. But there's an invitation to embrace the hope of life while it is lived. So come down off that mountain and join the party, he says. Celebrate the memories of the ones you love in the midst of the feast. Don't starve with the guilt of surviving. Drink your wine with a joyful heart in the company of the living who love you, remembering Jesus who turned water into wine. Our Savior, remember, knows the full taste of the cup of suffering and death, and he faced it with courage on a day he did not choose, dying in a manner he did not desire. Into your hands, O Lord, O Father. But do you remember the days before his death? Do you remember what he was accused of? The Son of Man was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, eating with tax collectors and sinners on his left and on his right. And his answer when people wondered aloud, why aren't you fasting, was who can fast when the bridegroom is with them? Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. This is the wisdom of the teacher of Ecclesiastes, of the rabbi Jesus. You cannot control the day of disaster, but in the days that you are living, rejoice. Do not allow death more than it's due. Place your hope in life. Enjoy life with your spouse, with the ones that you love. And this can be not simply spouses, but friends, people who depend on you, people who you are connected with. Enjoy life with them. How many people are you neglecting right now? How many relationships are you neglecting right now? Pouring so much energy into trying to control things you will never control. Why refuse to embrace those who are living out of a dedication to the dead who can no longer embrace you? This is the question the teacher asks. Do your work wholeheartedly, whatever task your hand finds to do. And we know this is wise counsel. We know this is pragmatic. The question, of course, is how do we live this? See, wisdom, as good as it is, ultimately needs the prophets. And Advent, as wonderful as wisdom is during Advent, also needs the prophets. Because Advent, the question of how we live, how our hearts go from constricted and fearful to three times their size and celebrating, this is where Advent is essential and the prophetic vision is key. Remember that Advent, I said, is the in-between time and the limits of the vision of the writers to Ecclesiastes was one life. You're living in the middle of your life between the beginning and the end. Advent says you're living in the middle of a far greater story. You and I are living in the middle of Jesus, the life of Jesus Christ, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his return. And as George preached on two weeks ago, the victory of God's return is certain. So when we are taken up onto the mountain with our constricted heart, we look out with the hope of the prophets to the victory of God's return and all things being restored. That's where our hearts are expanded. This is the grace that expands our hearts. I'll tell you a story. I had a friend who was on an airplane this week, and um, he took his jacket off, and he had all these valuable things in his jacket, you know, iPhone and wallet and keys and things. And he put his jacket in the seat, uh, underneath the seat in front of him, you know, where his feet are. And somewhere during the flight, this woman, this old woman who's sitting in front of him, took his jacket and took everything out of it. Uh, took out his phone, took out his wallet, took out his keys, and just discarded it in front of her feet. So at, at one point, the good news for him is the flight wasn't over because uh, he notices his jacket is gone, and, and he's looking, he sees it in front of her. So he goes and he stands next to her seat and says, can I have my jacket back? 
And she doesn't say a word. She just picks up his jacket, puts his phone in, puts his wallet in, puts his keys in, and hands it back. Is that not the weirdest thing? <laughs> Completely surreal, and it's a perfect Advent parable. Because here's the thing. The writer to Ecclesiastes, the most he can see is that God has set God's creatures down on this earth like so many jackets. And at some point, death will come along and wordlessly empty out of them everything of worth and everything of value and discard the bodies. But the story of Advent is that the flight is not over yet. And not only that, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who owns each and every one of these souls, has boarded this plane and stands over death to say, I want them back. And death, wordlessly, because it has no more words to say, will put everything of worth and everything of value back, will give it up. And the bodies will, that had been discarded will be restored. The Lord shall return and the dead will stand on the earth incorruptible. This is our hope. But it's not our only hope. There's a second hope, essentially, that comes with the return of Jesus Christ at Advent. And it's very important in Ecclesiastes. Do you remember what the actual evil was, the greater evil was in this passage? Not simply that everyone dies, but that they die without distinction. The greater evil was the lack of justice. And the great hope, the second great hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he will return to restore distinction among the dead, which is just another way of saying that he will return to, to restore justice. Remember Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is the second great hope at Advent, that the distinction between those who gave their lives in love and service for the least of these as serving Jesus Christ, the righteous will be welcomed into eternal life. And there will be a distinction and a judgment for those who rejected, for those whose lives participate in the outcome of death and in injustice. This is not something we think about very often at Christmas time. But there is no hope in the return and the end. There is no restoration of this great evil, of the, this loss of distinction and death, unless when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, justice is restored. And so the hope that we live with in this life is not just the hope of life. It's the hope of life incorruptible and justice restored. It's the vision of life incorruptible and justice restored. And it's this hope and this vision that gives us the courage to come back down off the mountain and celebrate with joy the life that we're given. It's, it's this hope and this vision that gives us the courage to come back down off the mountain and to embrace not simply the spouse whom we love, but our, our neighbors and our enemies, those who are completely different than us. It's this hope that gives us the courage to come down off the mountain and to embrace and work tirelessly for justice. This courageous fullness of life in the face of death was brought poignantly to my attention again a few weeks ago when I visited the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site in Atlanta. And I was awestruck, again, by the courage and the fullness of life of men and women whose faith in an ultimate, just distinction at the return of Jesus instilled courage to dedicate their full energy to that work for justice in this time to do what God had called them to do with love with nonviolence. 
And we stood and listened to the recording of Dr. King's final sermon in Memphis, the city where he was assassinated. His awareness that he lived and worked in an Advent season in the middle of the story. I would encourage you, you can find it online. Go and read this sermon. Because it begins with, with Dr. King imagining he stood with the panoramic view of the whole of human history before him, given a choice of where to live. And he described his gladness that the Almighty had allowed him to live in his own period of time, in the middle, at this time, to see what was unfolding. And while his sermon poignantly ends with the famous reflection that he has been to the mountaintop and looked over and seen the promised land, in the middle of that sermon is his Ecclesiastes moment, that at some point you come down off the mountain to live out what you've seen. That while it's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, he preached, one day God's preacher must talk about the New York, the new Atlanta, the new Los Angeles. These are lives shaped in the hope of the second advent. Lives that come down off the mountain where they've seen the promises and the goodness and the hope of the return of Jesus Christ and live with courage that reality to give hope in living for others. So as we move on in our worship service, our, 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 our band is, and worship leaders are going to repeat for us the song, Be Still My Soul. And I invite you to pray this as you sit, to receive the grace of the promises and the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, to let them expand your hearts. Because this is our Advent invitation to have our hearts enlarged with the songs of Jesus' first coming in hope of his second, to let the hope of the restoration of all things at the resurrection of the dead, the justice of Jesus' return, call us back down from the mountain, whether grieving a personal dying and loss or grieving death and loss from injustice and violence in our world, in hope lived with courage in the times in between. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.